Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the news section. Hi, I'm Janet Freeman Daly. I'm a writer, lung cancer patient and research advocate, and co-moderator of the monthly Lung Cancer Social Media Twitter chat, also known as LCSM Chat. On this episode of Lung Cancer Considered Podcast, I am joined by Dr. Amy Moore, Dr. Upal Basuroy, and Dr. Alicia Sequest to discuss the impact of the COVID-19 epidemic on lung cancer patients and healthcare providers. Dr. Amy Moore is Director of Science and Research at the GoTo Foundation for Lung Cancer. She has a PhD in microbiology and immunology from Wake Forest University School of Medicine and has experience as a cancer researcher. Dr. Upal Basu Roy is Vice President of Research at Longevity Foundation. He has a PhD in molecular and cellular biology from the University of Arizona and a master's in public health in global health policy and management from New York University. Dr. Alicia Sequest is the Director of Center for Innovation in Early Cancer Detection at Massachusetts General Hospital and the Landry Family Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. She is a thoracic oncology clinician and researcher and holds a master's in public health. Welcome, Amy, Upal, and Alicia. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Amy, tell us about this SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19. How is it different from other viruses? Sure. Well, this um, virus, which is the Severe Acute Respiratory Coronavirus 2, 19, first emerged in a cohort of about 41 patients in Wuhan, China in December 2019. It is a novel coronavirus, meaning nobody in the world has ever been infected with it. So first and foremost, that's an important point because we don't have existing immunity against a new virus. Um, We have looked at this virus as it compares to flu and other respiratory viruses. And what we know is that infection with SARS-CoV-2 is more severe than a typical flu virus. Um, What we also know is that it's more infectious. We talk about something called the reproduction number, meaning how many people can one infected person spread the virus to. And for flu, um, that number is typically around one. For SARS-CoV-2, that number is between two and two and a half individuals. So one person can infect two or maybe more people. And that has important ramifications for how quickly we've seen this virus spread around the world, um, resulting in um, really the exponential spread, if you will, that we're currently seeing in countries around the world and here in the U.S. So there are a number of coronaviruses that infect humans. SARS-CoV-2 is the seventh such virus. There are four that we consider to be endemic, kind of regularly circulating among humans, and they typically result in relatively mild disease. We know of two other viruses that resulted in concerning outbreaks. The first, SARS, um, which thankfully was extinguished pretty quickly, um, also caused respiratory symptoms. And then there was the 
Middle East Respiratory Syndrome virus or MERS that um, emerged. So this is the seventh such virus. Um, and what we know from early studies on SARS-CoV-2, there had been various theories offered for how it emerged. We know that um, the first patients were located near um, a seafood market in the city of Wuhan, but our evidence to date suggests two possible hypotheses. One, that the virus may have emerged from a natural um, host being bats and then subsequently infected humans. Um, another hypothesis is that it um, jumped to humans, underwent some uh, mutations, if you will, and then reinfected a different animal host before kind of developing into the form we currently um, recognize and that's ca causing problems around the world. So, you know, all that being said, we're looking at a novel virus that has unique specificity for uh, the lungs. And as such, it poses a serious threat to human health. So it has receptors that go directly to the lungs. Is that right? The virus binds a receptor called the angiotensin converting enzyme 2 receptor, which is um, found in the alveoli, which are the little air sacs in the lungs, as well as other um, places throughout the body. But the uh, receptor is most abundant in the lungs. And so that explains why it is um, targeting the lungs kind of almost exclusively, if you will, um, and causing this um, atypical viral pneumonia that is rapidly um, advancing in patients who become infected with the virus. So is this virus man-made? Can we tell? It is not man-made. Um, our data suggests that there's nothing about this virus or its sequence that would suggest that it has arisen as a result of uh, recombinant engineering or man-made efforts. Okay. So um, we know that flu virus and cold viruses can live on surfaces for a little while. Um, is this virus different? How long does it live on surfaces? There was a study that was just released in the New England Journal of Medicine that compared the SARS-CoV-2 virus to the original SARS virus and looked at its ability to survive in various forms and on different surfaces, including in aerosol form and on copper, cardboard, steel, and plastic. What they observed in, in terms of aerosol form is that the virus under ideal conditions may survive for up to several hours. And I think this has important implications, particularly in healthcare settings where providers are treating patients um, up close. So that is you know, reinforces the need for uh, PPE and protective equipment. Um, and then in terms of the other surfaces, for cardboard and copper, uh, copper in, in particular, it may survive up to four hours on those surfaces. For cardboard, perhaps as long as 24 hours. So, you know, we would advise people when possible if they're receiving deliveries and they can do so you know, wipe down those surfaces or even maybe set out in the garage for a day to let the virus particles kind of, um, you know, dissipate. In terms of steel and plastic, we have observed the paper reports that the virus may survive for as long as 72 hours on those surfaces. So, 
you know, that has implications as we are out and about. And that's part of the reason we're asking people to shelter in place, because as people come in more contact with surfaces, they may uh, come into contact with with virus particles as they're out in the grocery store, for example. So using um, proper hand hygiene is critical at after you touch surfaces, for example. Um, and then, you know, there were um, some preliminary reports from some analysis of um, the Grand Princess Cruise Line that suggested that there may be RNA deposits, you know, upwards of 17 days, which I think what we want to stress is that that doesn't necessarily mean there was infectious virus present, but RNA from the virus could still be detected as long as 17 days after patient or after uh, passengers were no longer on board the ship. So it, it does survive for quite some time. What this means in terms of, you know, comparing SARS-CoV-2 to the original SARS virus, there are a lot of similarities in how long the, the viruses survive on surfaces, but we still need to um, adhere to all the uh, protective practices that we've all been implementing as far as proper hand hygiene, uh, covering sneezes and coughs, you know, disposing of tissues and such that we don't um, continue to spread virus particles. Okay. Um, Upal, so you have a master's in public health. Let's talk about how the virus spreads. What is social distancing and why does it matter? So I'm sure people are reading a lot about social distancing. And uh, I live in New York City, which was uh, recently declared as one of the disaster zones for COVID-19. And being a public health scientist, I cannot stress enough on the importance of social distancing in the times of a pandemic such as COVID-19. So what is social distancing? So it's, it's a very evidence-based public health measure, which basically involves increasing the physical space between people to avoid spreading illness. And the optimal social distancing is said to be six feet or two meters. And the idea of social distancing is basically to make sure that people do not congregate in crowds. They do not attend events. They don't go to movie theaters. And when they are going and doing essential activities such as groceries, they do it in a way that they maintain a safe distance from others. Now, this is this can be incredibly isolating, obviously, but at the same time, social distancing is known to work very, very clearly in times of pandemics. And in fact, for COVID-19 itself, recent data coming out from China and Singapore suggests that these two places have implemented rigorous social distancing processes and they're seeing the impact already. And they're seeing a flattening of the curve already, which is a great sign. Now, what do I mean by flattening of the curve? Now, when you think of an infectious disease, you see an increase in the number of cases rising with time. Now, as Amy mentioned, in this case, uh, in, in the case of COVID-19, the reproductive number R0 is about 2.5, which means that every infected individual can infect another 2.5 individuals. Now, basically, if we do not practice social distancing, what will happen is one infected individual can actually infect 
244 new cases within a month. But if we actually practice social distancing, we can decrease that. Now, if we do not practice social distancing, what happens? The number of cases keep on rising, and then you'll see a steep spike in the number of cases. And ultimately, what will happen is our health systems, which basically involves the number of doctors, the number of hospitals, the number of nurses, the number of ICU beds, the number of ventilators, the these very critical resources of our health system, the numbers will not be enough to actually keep on par with the rise of cases. Now, this is the steep rise that I'm talking about that we want to avoid. Now, what we mean by flattening of the curve is essentially to make sure that we as a community take different precautions, such as social distancing, such that the rise in infection comes happens very slowly, and we have resources to make sure that those individuals who need access to healthcare during the time of COVID-19 have access to the resources that they need instead of flooding our healthcare system. Now, I do also want to make a point about the difference between uh, social distancing and self-quarantine. There has been a little bit of confusion and people think that social distancing and self-quarantine are the same things. They are actually not the same thing. Now, what self-quarantine basically means is if you feel that you've been exposed to the virus, then you essentially quarantine yourself in your home for 14 days to make sure that you do not infect anyone else around you. So why is it important for us to understand community transmission? It's incredibly important for us to understand community transmission for the following reason. So imagine someone who's exposed to SARS-CoV-2. There might be three possible outcomes. Either the person develops a severe, severe infection, which will be about 20% of the population will develop a severe infection. About 60% of the population will have a mild infection and the remaining 20% of the population may not show any symptoms at all. But that 20% asymptomatic population continue to be infectious. And that's why we do need to understand community transmission because recent data from Japan shows that as much as 35% of infections were caused by individuals who did not have symptoms of COVID-19. All right. So where can lung cancer patients find some more information about um, proper hygiene and cleaning and, and social distancing? In terms of information on basic public health measures such as hygiene and social distancing, I would recommend that every lung cancer patient use the CDC website for the most recent and up-to-date information right from how to do social distancing, what's the importance of self-quarantine and other measures such as handling of food and vegetables and things like that, I highly recommend the CDC website because it's uh, very accurate and always up to date. Thank you. So, Alicia, thank you so much for everything you and all the healthcare providers are doing for patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'd like to hear a bit of what it's like on the front lines. Uh, are lung cancer patients considered to be at high risk for having a severe case of COVID-19? Uh, you're welcome, Janet. Thank you for um, for mentioning that because I think all healthcare workers uh, are really just putting their hearts on on the field and leaving it all out there. It's it's an amazing um, 
an inspiring thing to to see all around us every day. So, you know, we're still learning how COVID affects people and how underlying conditions, predisposing conditions like cancer might, um, or pre-existing conditions like cancer might affect it. Um, you know, I think that the preliminary data that's coming out of the countries that were infected first, such as China and Italy, are hinting that indeed cancer patients may have a more difficult time dealing with this illness and surviving this illness. And as a lung cancer clinician, I'm certainly very worried about my patients because it's a respiratory illness. And many lung cancer patients already have some degree of respiratory compromise at baseline from their cancer. So um, I don't think we have any hard data that lung cancer patients are having any specific different outcome compared to other types of cancer, but that's because a lot of data is not available yet. And we are certainly trying to take every precaution with our lung cancer patients. Well, what range of symptoms are doctors seeing in patients right now? I've, I've heard that some people could be completely asymptomatic and still have the virus. That's right. And uh, it seems that people can be asymptomatic, sometimes even for the entire course of their infection, which makes them particularly high risk of transmitting it to other people when the carrier doesn't even realize that they're sick. But even if people do develop symptoms, sometimes they are asymptomatic for several days or even a week um, before the symptoms arise. The most uh, in clinic right now, we are having a low threshold to evaluate people if we can get access to the testing for COVID-19 if they are telling us that they have new symptoms of cough, difficulty breathing, fever, sore throat, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, um, you know, anything that is a viral type symptom, although fever and sore throat are the most common presenting symptoms. Uh, what's it like in the hospitals right now? Well, I'm not sure what it's like in every hospital, but uh, from what I've heard from colleagues around the world, I think a lot of the larger hospitals and the urban hospitals are completely different than you know normal times. Um, there are minimal staff. There, you know, everyone is trying to work remotely to support the people who are working in the hospital, but the less people physically come into the hospital, the safer the patients are. Um, many hospitals uh, where I work at Mass General, we've just moved to this. Uh, everyone wears masks in the hospital at all time, all employees. So whether you're a uh, administrative person, uh, working in the cafeteria, a technician, a nurse, a doctor, everyone is wearing a mask to protect our patients. And we also have to um, attest to the fact that we're feeling well every day when we come to work. In order to get into the building, we have to say, I'm not having a fever right now. I'm not having a cough. And this is all designed to keep our patients as safe as possible. Um, so these types of extra procedures and precautions are throughout the hospitals. And so if you're coming to the hospital as a patient, you know, I think expect that things may take a little bit longer, even though things are much more empty than you're used to. Um, there's just a lot of additional safety procedures in place. 
Amy, did you have something to say about conjunctivitis? I had seen some reports and saw some um, guidance issued by the American Association of, or American Academy of Ophthalmology, rather, on um, conjunctivitis, as well as some reports from nurses in, or yeah, I guess staff in the nursing home in Washington State who reported the presence of red eyes as a possible early indication of infection. And I was curious um, to see, Dr. Sequest, if you've heard anything on that front. I I haven't, but again, I want to stress that I think we're really on that very early edge of learning how patients um, present. I, I think this is a really interesting example of trying to make decisions when the sample sizes are so small. We want to make decisions that will have a good outcome, but we don't know if it will prove true for everybody just because it proved true for one patient. So it's very difficult for doctors right now, I would imagine. So how is cancer patient care changing during this pandemic? Well, uh, I think care for every medical condition is changing during this time. A lot of healthcare resources are being diverted appropriately so towards taking care of the COVID-19 patients, especially those who are critically ill. Um, I can say that, you know, I think that cancer is a niche that the entire healthcare system is working very hard to attempt to maintain normalcy. Um, You know, people uh, with serious conditions that were in the middle of treatment before this whole pandemic hit, um, you know, we're, we're trying to continue on with treatments the best that we can. But there's no doubt that there are some impacts on patients um, due to the lack of resources. Is this pandemic having an effect on research or clinical trials? I, I think this pandemic is uh, having a huge effect on research. Um, you know, as, as you're well aware, there are multiple different types of research and clinical trials are just one uh, very important part. But, um, you know, there's a lot of correlative work that goes on in cancer research and a lot of basic laboratory work that goes on in cancer research. And those, especially those things that aren't directly involving patient care in the here and now are, are really on hold uh, globally. Uh, so, um, because of social distancing, um, a lot of the bench laboratories have had to shut down. And for cancer research, you know, this this may have a big impact. All of the cell lines and the mice and, um, you know, these different cancer models that we have been building for years um, are, are at some risk. Um, you know, it varies from institution to institution. What type of minimal staff are able to come and maintain these precious resources? Um, but certainly new samples are not being collected from patients at this time. And um, the review boards, the ethics boards that review research, um, a lot of a lot of those mechanisms are on hold as well. As far as clinical trials and patients who are actively being treated with experimental cancer drugs, that is, you know, the area where a lot of the limited resources are being put so that patients do not have an interruption in their treatment if possible. But, you know, all of this is very 
dependent, uh, it may vary from center to center and depending on the staffing and the support uh, and frankly, the, you know, the strength of the pandemic in different cities, you know, I think this is something that's, that's going to vary. Um, you know, when I'm talking to my patients during this time of, of COVID uh, and we're thinking about clinical trials, the, the whole conversation around the risks and benefits has had to shift. A lot of times a clinical trial involves more trips to the hospital than a standard treatment might involve. And so we have to think about um, how does that translate to the patient in terms of risk that they're taking on by coming to the hospital. The good news is that um, FDA and and insurance companies and research sponsors have all uh, really made a lot of accommodations in a very short amount of time to try and help um, keep patients safe during this time. So a lot of visits uh, can all of a sudden be <laughs> done by telephone and by video conference um, when that wasn't allowed before. And um, so there are there are some silver linings about the way that research is changing. Um, but but I am worried about the lasting effect, the long the long term um, devastation to the to cancer research efforts that is going to result from this pandemic. I've also heard from some patients that their routine visits are being postponed, routine scans are being delayed, um, or they may not have their labs. So what is your advice for lung cancer patients who are in active treatment or may have upcoming appointments? Well, I think that it's really important to reach out to your team if they haven't reached out to you. Um, you know, I, I, I think that uh, I can say as a clinician, what I'm doing is trying to look several days ahead and um, communicate with my patients who are scheduled to come for scans or come for visits and blood work. And we talk about, is is this test or is this visit needed at this time? Could it safely be delayed? Um, could it be accomplished somewhere else other than the hospital, like a local lab? Um, clinic. Um, and I, I think there's no one right answer that's going to be the right policy for every patient. Because it very much depends on the type of treatment they're on, how long they've been on it, how stable their cancer has been. Uh, so it's hard to have a one-size-fits-all. But I think for patients um, in whom their doctor and their team feels like it's medically reasonable to delay a test or a treatment for a few weeks, uh, especially if it's during the peak time of when cases are expected to be really blossoming in their in their city, um, it, it's probably best to to stay home and not expose yourself. You know, there's a lot of variability, but uh, we're we're all hoping that um, that this large wave, like Upal was talking about, flattening the curve. If we can really try and keep a big tsunami of of patients and cases from coming in all at once and crippling the healthcare system, then all of the other downstream things, uh, all of the other patients getting care for cancer and other chronic illnesses, will do better with their own treatments. So as we get close to the end of the podcast, I'd like us to talk about what signs of 
hope you might see. For instance, I just heard a webinar from Fred Hutch that said there are at least eight different vaccines for COVID in development. So when might those be available? This is Amy. I, there's actually more than eight in development. I can say that because my husband is a vaccinologist who works on respiratory viruses and is throwing his hat into the arena to work on a COVID vaccine as well. Um, so, you know, I think my takeaway is I am a scientist and I believe in the power of science. I believe in data. I believe in evidence. I believe that in taking all the measures that we've discussed here, that we can make an impact and we can save lives. Now, we have to be realistic as we're also hopeful because vaccines do take time to develop. And that's to ensure their efficacy, their safety. You know, uh, we're talking about a huge lift then once we have one that seems to work to manufacture enough doses. Um, but I have never wavered from being hopeful in the face of this pandemic. And, you know, I'm doing everything in my power to communicate that message to those whom we serve. Um, and so, you know, I think we will get there. We have to be steadfast and holding the line and doing what we can um, now to give the scientists and the doctors and all those on the front lines the leg up that they need to deliver on those vaccines and those antivirals and those treatments that will help us defeat this disease. Upal, I know that uh, you're online and in talking with other people. Um, it seems like research into COVID is more open and there's more data sharing now than there has been previously in research. Are you? Does that make you hopeful? That makes me incredibly hopeful, Janet. And uh, COVID-19 has galvanized the international scientific and medical community in a way that is unprecedented. It's wonderful. And uh, to sort of also add to uh, Amy's point about new treatments, new vaccine, the WHO actually just started a clinical trial called Solidarity, which is going to be an international clinical trial. And institutions and universities from all over the world have bought into it, and they're all willing to share data, and they're all willing to share learnings, again, to make sure that we as a community are equipped to deal with COVID-19. So it's a time of incredible hope and promise as well. And Lisha, are you seeing that the physicians are... Um, galvanizing a social media to be able to share information about um, developments they've seen for treatment or in symptoms? Absolutely. I uh, will echo the comments of Amy and Upal that I don't think I've ever seen anything like this as far as community cooperation, uh, people sharing information on social media um, that can be helpful to oncologists and to cancer patients, and also you know, uh, providers sharing information with each other. You know, some of our oncology colleagues in Italy were um, mailing out um, their their uh, observations in real time as to how to protect our patients in the U.S. And the the lead message was, you know, this is what we're seeing today. Do this right now, you know, to prevent your patients from getting sick tomorrow. And just the selflessness and the cooperation 
amongst the whole medical community has been awe-inspiring. I, I also am very hopeful about what Upal was saying before about social distancing being a proven method to help decrease the transmission. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, it had a little bit of a bumpy start um, in the U.S., but now I see that really across the country, people are embracing this idea. And um, I, I think in the early data coming in from the hospitals, we're already seeing that cases start to uh flatten out a little bit. And I think that if um, we all work together, we can really break the chain and uh, keep the most vulnerable patients safe. Well, Amy, Upal, and Leisha, thank you so much for making time to talk to me and for your dedication to helping lung cancer patients. Everyone, please stay home and stay safe. If you can't stay home, please practice social distancing and wash your hands. For our healthcare workers and others doing essential work, thank you for keeping the country going. And please take every precaution you can to stay safe. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more Lung Cancer Considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues.